Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. You're listening to Dr. Jack McKeating, MD, General Surgeon at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, giving a talk entitled, A Death He Freely Accepted. Dr. McKeating's talk was part of the Chapel Ministries series at Franciscan University of Steubenville. Well, thank you, Dr. Hahn. Thank you all, Rob, and everybody for your kind invitation. It's really an honor and a pleasure for me to be here. I have to tell you, it's also a little bit intimidating coming to the Franciscan University to talk about anything having to do with the faith. I feel like I'm going to MIT to talk about particle physics. <laughs> so you have to bear with me, be kind to me. <clears throat> and in that vein, if anybody has any suggestions, corrections, please, I'd be very gratified to hear any suggestions that you have. My <clears throat> email is my name, McKeatingJA at upmc.edu, so please feel free. I have to tell you, too, that as a Catholic layman out there in the community, this university really is a beacon of hope, and it makes us all much more positive about the future of Catholicism in this country. I'd be very proud to be here. Uh, I guess we're all interested in this topic, but for my own personal odyssey, I grew up in Oakland in the city of Pittsburgh, <clears throat> and my parish was the cathedral. Many of you have probably been there. To the right of the side altar, there's a big, beautiful crucifix, and the corpus is probably life-size or bigger than life-size. And I can remember sitting there as a child and just staring at that, probably when I should have been paying attention to other things. Um, and I knew that it was something awesome and terrible. I didn't understand it. I'm not sure I still do completely. Uh, but that kind of, I think, spiked my interest. And then if you fast forward years later after emerging from the fog of adolescence, I went to medical school, did my surgical training, and then I went to Buffalo to do a fellowship in surgical oncology. And I met some very interesting fellows there. Um, I was invited to a Bible study on, we used to meet Thursday mornings at 5.30, and a nurse said to one of these fellows, how do you get up so early? And he said, well, we have a meeting with the creator of the universe. So there was a, a Southern Baptist, a Methodist, and a, an evangelical Protestant from the Dayton area. I didn't know it at the time, but at least one of them was trying to save me from the Catholic Church. Uh, <laughs> which at that point in my life would not have been really a Herculean effort, I must say. Um, but anyway, in that study, they circulated an article, and it was published in the Journal of the American Medical Association. I have it. I'll reference it for you. I believe in um, the late 80s, and it was written by a pathologist and a minister from the Mayo Clinic. And it's called On the Physical Suffering and Death of Jesus Christ, Journal of the American Medical Association. The lead author's name is Edwards. And it is by far the best short work on this subject. So if you want to look for a reference, that would be it. Um, many of you probably grow, grew up like me thinking that three people were crucified, right? Christ and the good thief and the bad thief. Crucifixion was actually very common in antiquity. This is a Bronikoff painting from 1878 that depicts a mass crucifixion. This is probably a depiction of uh, the famous slave uprising with Spartacus in about 71, 72 BC. The Romans crucified between five and 6,000 men in one day. 
The Appian Way from Capua to Rome was lined with crucifixes. <clears throat> so you see a dead body in the foreground, and then a mass of crucifixes. You can see a few dogs and probably some birds of prey, and we'll talk about some of those things a little bit later. But this was not an uncommon phenomenon. A little later, we'll talk about things like hemorrhage and shock. So I think it's important to say a word about what Christ's actual physical body might have been like. And the bottom line is we don't know very much. Thank you, Scott. There have been volumes spilled, filled with speculation. <clears throat> and I can tell you what I've kind of gleaned from researching this. We know that our Lord lived in the first century in Palestine, that He was a tradesman. Tradition tells us a, a carpenter, so He obviously lived a, an active physical life, walked all over the Holy Land with His compatriots. Um, we don't know much about His stature, though. We do know when the temple guard comes to arrest Him, Judas has to come up and give him a kiss on the cheek. He can't say he's the very tall guy, he's the very short guy, he's the heavy guy, so he probably looked like his compatriots. From what we know from archaeological evidence, an adult male in that era, in that part of the world, was probably between 5'2 and 5'5 five five in height, and maybe 50 to 55 kilograms, so probably a little uh, shorter in stature than we are now. So, to begin the passion narrative, <clears throat> I choose the Last Supper. This is obviously the famous Da Vinci painting. There were no photographers or AP photographers there, so I borrow liberally from the masters. Um, this was painted for his patron, the Duke of Milan. That's probably the most famous depiction of the Last Supper. Well, we know at the Last Supper, Christ already knew he would be betrayed. We knew that he is already undergoing a, a tremendous emotional and spiritual torment. So we'll begin the passion narrative there. We know that from the upper room they go to the garden. <clears throat> this is a Vasari painting from the 16th century, 16th century Italian depicting the garden. So you see the apostles asleep in the foreground and then kind of in the middle is Christ being ministered to by the angels. And in the upper left, <coughs> excuse me, I was telling Dr. Hahn that my grandchildren got me sick a couple weeks ago. The vectors of all communicable diseases, little children. <laughs> in, the, in the upper left, uh, you see the temple guard coming to arrest our Lord. And as we know, they're sleeping. Uh, Peter and James and John, the sons of Zebedee. This is a Fra Angelica painting. I didn't know that he was beatified by Pope John Paul II in 1982. Um, another depiction of the garden with the holy women in the foreground, the apostles asleep, and our Lord in prayer again. Um, so we know that this again is an appalling uh, mental agony, the, the dimensions of which we can't even imagine. We know the effect of sin in our own lives, and to imagine bearing the weight of all sin for all humanity for all of time, it's, it's unfathomable. Um, it was a long sleepless night. In that part of the world in April, the low temperatures can get down into the 40s. There was no Gore-Tex, uh, no fancy clothing. It's at, at about 26 or 2700 feet of elevation. That is not high enough to cause any physiologic consequences, 
but it could certainly contribute to exposure. This would be roughly the equivalent of kneeling all night in prayer on a ski slope at Seven Springs in early April. Probably not pleasant. Now, St. Luke says, and he's the only one of the evangelists that records this, and we don't know why that is, maybe because he was a physician, and his sweat became like drops of blood running down upon the ground. I had a friend of mine who's a Greek scholar look this up in Greek, and the actual Greek word was thrombos, which is what we use today to indicate a blood clot. Um, I heard a speaker one time say, well... Of course, this is kind of hyperbole because people don't actually sweat blood. Uh, it was just meant to be some type of dramatization. People do, in fact, sweat blood. It's a very rare but real medical condition called hematidrosis or hemhydrosis. The theory is that the small tangle of capillaries around a sweat gland let loose and you bleed into the sweat gland and the blood is then extruded up onto the skin. You're probably not talking about massive amounts of blood, but with profuse sweating, this could contribute to dehydration as many of the other things that our Lord went through also might. This is a collection of articles published by two brothers, published in the Louisiana State Medical Journal. I can't see the date there, but it was in the 70s sometimes, I think. 90, 96, I'm sorry. They collected 76 cases, recorded cases of hematidrosis from the medical literature. This is another article from the American Journal of Dematopathology, which is relatively recent. And this is an article from the Indian Journal of Dermatology and Virology. This is a depiction of a young woman who actually witnessed a beheading. And when she would relive this horrible experience, she suffered hematidrosis. They collected the secretions from her forehead and analyzed them. They contained red blood cells, white blood cells, platelets. This is indeed blood. In a quiescent phase when she was not sweating blood, they biopsied this area of her forehead and it's completely normal. There's no hemangioma, telangiectasia, there's no other reason other than hematidrosis or hemidrosis why she should sweat blood. So clearly this is rare, but it's also very real. From the garden, uh, our Lord is arrested and taken to Annas and then Caiaphas. We know that um, this again was a long and rough night. In the 26th chapter, Matthew says, they spat in his face and buffeted him while others struck his face with the palms of their hands. Now these guards think that this is a real low life they just arrested. He's a revolutionary, he's a troublemaker, he's a uh, whatever they thought of him, a heretic, and obviously treated him very badly. We usually hear buffet in terms of the weather, you know, the wave buffeted the lighthouse. But to buffet means to strike violently and repeatedly. So I don't think it takes a stretch of imagination to think that our Lord may have been beaten, kicked, knocked to the ground repeatedly through this whole evening. Um, eventually, they take him to the praetorium. The Jews couldn't pronounce a death sentence. They had to get the permission of the procurator. But if you follow all the path that they all walked that night, as this, the numbers indicate where they went, uh, and 
obviously back to the back to uh, Pilot. It's about a two and a half mile trek. Again, under bad circumstances, long sleepless night. There's there's a lot going on. So we know that <clears throat> Pilate then sentences our Lord to be scourged and then crucified. So let's talk for a minute about scourging. Scourging was one of the most feared of all punishments. Scourging was a legal antecedent to crucifixion. So normally anybody who was crucified would be scourged, although if you're going to do 5,000 in a day, you might have to forego that formality. Um, but typically you were scourged before you were crucified. Um, it could be used as a form of capital punishment. You could be scourged to death. It could be used for interrogation and whatever other horrible uh, ends they wanted to use it for. The scourge or the flagrum has a wooden handle, maybe um, 18 inches long, and then three long leather straps. At the end of the straps were either small iron balls or they like to use the ankle bones of sheep, I think because they were sharp and they would tear into the flesh. Sometimes the individual was also beaten first with uh, staves or, or rods to make the skin swollen and make the blows of the scourge much more injurious. Um, Mosaic law limited the punishment to 40 lashes, and I think their scrupulosity, they lowered that to 39 in case somebody miscounted. They didn't want to violate the law. But the Romans had no such prohibition. The only uh, prohibition in the Roman law was that you had to be alive to be crucified. I don't know if you remember in the Mel Gibson movie, the centurion comes in and kind of yells at the lictors who are doing the beating and says, are you crazy? You're going to kill him. We have to crucify this guy. But it clearly was possible to be scourged to death. If you think about the length of a man's arm, the length of the wooden handle, the length of the leather straps, you're getting out to the length of a bullwhip. So they, this can generate tremendous velocity. Also, be mindful of the fact that these are not stiff instruments. They're very flexible and can easily wrap around to the individual's sides or even the front of the body. There's an eyewitness account of a scourging who talks about quivering ribbons of flesh hanging from the victim's back. So what that means is the skin is torn away, the subcutaneous fat is torn away, and the muscle, the big muscles in the back, probably trapezius, some of the paraspinous muscles, were hanging loose, but they were still innervated, and so they twitched automatically as they hung there. It gives you a little glimpse of how horrible this is. This is from the JAMA article in 86 that I referenced before. Um, the far left side just shows you the flagrum or the scourge, and then the next segment is the individual tied to a post. And then it's a little confusing, but the, the kind of the third quarter of the <coughs> diagram shows the Roman soldiers administering the scourging with the victim tied to the pole. And then on the right, you see the direction of the whip marks. This is a photograph taken from an autopsy. A young man was murdered. And he was beaten with an electrical cord and a belt. At the time of the autopsy, they found tremendous injuries to the intercostal muscles, actually a fractured rib, and also injury to the lung underneath. 
So I would submit that if an electrical cord and a belt could do this, a scourge could do this and more. Um, clearly could cause severe injuries, including lung injuries. So if we think about the type of injuries a scourging could cause, clearly contusion, laceration, probably rib fractures, intercostal muscle injuries, and even a lung injury. I don't know if any of you ever took a helmet to the ribs or, you know, have fallen on ice or something and injured your ribs. It's excruciatingly painful. And what it does is cause what's called splinting, where you don't want to take a deep breath. You don't even want to talk loud. You take very shallow breaths because when you take a deep breath, it hurts. So this, again, is going to have effects on the victim, not only in terms of the chest, but also in terms of blood loss. I think Mel Gibson's movie was a pretty reasonable portrayal of this. When Mary and the holy women get down with linen and are mopping up the blood, it's not hard to believe that you could lose that much blood in an actual scourging. So next, I want to pivot a little bit and talk about the effects of that blood loss and shock. This is a famous uh, Thomas Eakins painting, a little dark, but that's Dr. Samuel Gross, the famous Philadelphia physician who coined the term shock, and Dr. Gross described it as the rude unhinging of the machinery of life. A more modern definition would be any condition in which the circulatory system can't provide adequate perfusion to vital organs. I'm going to move through these next series of slides relatively quickly because I don't want to belabor this, but I do kind of want to give you a little indication of what shock is. It's not, you know, Miss America saying, oh, I was in shock. I never thought I'd get, you know, elected Miss America. That's kind of the popular conception of shock. Shock is an actual physiological state. There are different types of shock and they correlate with what in the body fails. In order to have perfusion to your big toe, for example, you have to have fluid, which is blood, a pump, which is your heart, and pipes, which are the arteries. Any of them can fail and cause shock. We're going to talk about hypovolemic shock or hemorrhagic shock, which is if you don't have enough fluid. If you're, you know, your grandmother had a massive heart attack, she's in cardiogenic shock. Her heart's failing because it just can't pump enough. There's also a thing, a thing called distributive shock, someone who has a high spinal cord injury, a bad anaphylactic reaction, etc sepsis that can cause shock because the blood vessels lose their tone. A normal 70 kilogram individual probably has about five liters of blood. So this bears a little back on what I said before. If this victim, in this case we're talking about Christ obviously, was 55 kilos, blood loss of the same degree is more injurious in a smaller individual. You know, if Casey Hampton, the, the nose tackle for the Steelers, loses a liter of blood and I lose a liter of blood, I'm probably in worse shape than he is because of his stature. The reason that we're going to talk about is from hemorrhage, but you can lose this circulating blood volume for other reasons also. So your cardiac output is determined by how many times a minute your heart beats and how much blood is ejected with each beat. That's called an ejection fraction. Ejection fraction is determined for most of us by how much blood returns to the heart. That's called preload. Your heart's like a rubber band. If you stretch it a little bit, it contracts a little bit. If you stretch it a lot, it contracts a lot. 
So for your ventricle to empty well, it has to fill well. And a ventricle that's not filling well can't contract hard. It's, it's the rubber band that's not stretched enough. So this is how an individual who's losing blood actually ends up with a failing heart. Let's just skip that one. So if you lose blood volume, you decrease preload, decrease the amount the left ventricle can stretch, decrease the uh, contractility, and you end up with low cardiac output and shock. So that's, there's a lot packed into that, but that's the, basically what happens. Now, this is uh, a little chart from the American College of Surgeons Committee on Trauma. And what they try to do here is classify hemorrhage. Obviously, there are artificial distinctions. And not everything follows into a category like this, but for example, if one of you guys went and gave a unit of blood, you do okay. Maybe you get a little lightheaded if you stand up too fast, but you know you, you can easily probably lose 750 cc's of blood in a young, healthy person without having a big physiological effect. When that starts to increase, let's say you lose, look at the top line there, blood loss in milliliters. Let's say you lose a liter of blood. Well, all of a sudden your heart rate starts to go up a little bit your respiratory rate starts to go up a little bit. If we monitor over time, your urine output would start to decrease because you're not getting perfusion. And then as you go on in blood loss, you see more dramatic effects. So I would submit that a healthy 30-year-old male who's not able to stand erect and carry a wooden beam because he's falling to the ground from all the different physiologic consequences that he's already been going through, I would submit that this individual probably is already in some degree of hemorrhagic shock before you even get to the crucifix. And we will go through, oh, jeez, I just spilled that drink there. Uh, I guess we'll get it after. Next, we're going to briefly talk about um, the crowning with thorns. This is Caravaggio, one of my favorite. Uh, Ecce Homo, right? The, behold the man when uh, Pilate has uh, uh, our Lord mocked. Thank you very much. Um, some of these authors make kind of a big deal about the thorns. Injuring cranial nerves, causing all these physiologic effects. First of all, it's a huge mockery for that our Lord is going through. I think that's the biggest, obviously the biggest consideration. Your scalp is very well perfused. It would probably bleed very easily, but I don't think you're talking about amounts of blood loss that are going to really change things dramatically. Um, the type of thorn that they speculate was used is called a Syrian Christ thorn. This is endemic to that area. And if you look at these things, these aren't like little rose thorns. These are big. If you know what a hawthorn is, if you ever step on one of them, it'll go through one, the bottom of your foot and out the top, right? These are big spikes. So clearly could cause a lot of pain, probably some bleeding, but probably not uh, to have physiologic effects. And finally, I want to move quickly through some different considerations of crucifixion. Um, oh, thank you, Scott. 
The evangelists are sometimes frustrating in their brevity when they talk about crucifixion. They say things like, and then he was crucified. They knew what crucifixion was. Their audience knew what crucifixion was. As we talked about, it was commonplace. So they didn't have to go through much in the way of chapter and verse. This is a quote from Cicero, the famous Roman philosopher and statesman who calls crucifixion the most cruel and disgusting penalty. Another quote from Seneca, the famous Stoic philosopher. And basically what Seneca says is, you hope you're dead before they get you to the cross because it's so horrible. Crucifixion was, as I said, widespread. The Romans didn't begin it. It, it started in many other ancient cultures. It may have started with something as simple as impaling the victim on an upright post, and then over time it morphed into what we understand as crucifixion. The Romans probably got it, they think, from the Carthaginians. It was really a political punishment and it meant to be a deterrent. Uh, the victims were displayed in a prominent place there was, they were naked. There's no loincloth. That's probably for our puritanical sensibilities. Um, they were left on the cross when they died. In the ancient world, an honorable death required, required burial. It was very unusual that our Lord was buried uh, because usually they wouldn't let the victim be taken down and they would leave them there so that wolves and wild beasts and birds of prey could feed on the body. So you didn't have to usually crucify many people, for example, to put down a revolution. I think that third servile war, second or third servile war where they did that, Rome finally had it. And that was the one that was really an uprising that probably put Rome in some jeopardy. So their, their vengeance was horrible after that one. Constantine finally abolished crucifixion. Um, and Roman citizens couldn't be crucified, except in rare, very rare circumstances. Treason, desertion, um, it was very rare. Women typically were not crucified, but they could be. So it was really for the worst, hardened criminals, political criminals, revolutionaries, etc. And obviously our word excruciating comes from excruce, from the cross. A lot of questions that we have about crucifixion, some controversies. What type of wood was used? What type of cross was used, etc.? And we'll go through some of these briefly, and I can tell you what little I know. There are all kind of myths about the type of wood that were used. On the right is a dogwood flower, and I've heard this, but I can't ever really remember it. But the, those um, little discolored areas at the end of the white petals are kind of reddish and they're supposed to represent the wounds, and then the little thing in the middle is the crown of thorns, etc. But this is all, I think, really folklore. Uh, these are aspen trees on the right. If you've ever heard wind blow through aspens, it's a very unique sound, and it's almost kind of mournful. And so the myth in Western Europe is it was an aspen, and that's why they make this mournful sound. But the bottom line is we don't really know. The uh, Jewish historian Josephus talked about the scarcity of wood. And sometimes when the Romans laid siege to a city, they would have to bring wood with them um, to build their siege machines, whatever they were. There's one 
piece of paleobotanical analysis which shows a piece of olive wood which was found in a, at a site of crucifixion. And I'll show you an actual picture of that, but it probably wasn't olive wood. There were some oak tubules found on the shroud. So some people have theorized that it could be oak. I think the bottom line is we don't know, and they probably used whatever they had at their uh, available, especially you think about that Bronikoff painting with you know, 5,000 crucifixes over miles of road. <clears throat> a little bit about the type and shape of cross. We, I always grew up believing that the cross looked like our small letter T. And it may have. And I have to emphasize, this is all theory and opinion. And this was done so often that there were probably very many different types and shapes of these. But it's felt that the predominant type of cross was what's called a tau cross, like the Greek letter T. Um, it's also thought that the victim usually didn't carry the whole cross, but that he carried the cross piece called a patibulum. It comes from the word that used to, um, the piece of wood that would bar the door. And I guess when a slave acted up, sometimes they would tie that on them and make them walk around. It was kind of the equivalence of a dunce cap. Um, but the individual who was sentenced to be crucified would have this patibulum tied across his shoulders and then would carry that to the place of crucifixion where the stipes, the upright portion of the cross, was left in the ground permanently. If you think about it, sometimes you see in religious art a small framed male carrying this cross that looks like it was 15 feet high and you know, 10 inches in diameter. We couldn't carry that now under good circumstances. So, you know, other than something theological, I don't think that the cross our Lord carried was probably that big. I'm not saying, the weight of it was spiritual and, and emotional, I think, but not so much physical. Um, so the, the parts of the cross, the upright part is called the stipes, and the cross piece is the patibulum. There was sometimes what's called a sedal or a hook, which was kind of a hook of wood that stuck out in the perineum, basically in the, in the crotch, that if you put weight on that would be extremely painful. When you were, anybody was a kid, they sat on a sawhorse or a, or a fence post or something, and it, you can't sit there very long. It hurts like the devil. Uh, sometimes you also see depicted uh, a, a piece of wood where the feet were resting, and that's probably artistic fiction. I don't think that really occurred. The way these things were put together was with what's called a mortise and tenon joint, where there would be a piece hollowed out of the patibulum, so you could nail the victim's hands to it and then just hoist that up. And it would stay on the, on the upright piece, the stipes. You think about it also, some, sometimes we see, like in that one Fra Angelica painting, the crucifix looks like it's 15 feet high. That probably didn't happen. It's not, the, the Romans were, if they were anything, they were pragmatists, right? They were practical. Other than display, there's no reason that you would have to crucify someone that high. Also, when our Lord thirsts, what do they put the sponge on? They put it on a hyssop branch. Hyssop doesn't grow that big. So you're, you're probably not sticking that thing 20 feet up in the air. As long as your feet were off the ground enough that you could be A, prominently displayed, and B, die from the crucifixion. Um, once you got to the site of crucifixion, the victim's hands would either be nailed or sometimes actually tied to the cross piece. The feet also had to be fixed to the 
crucifix. And then survival has been documented to vary from a couple of hours to even a few days. If you weren't scourged badly under the right circumstances, it can take a young person a long time to die. This is one of the reasons that you read all kind of crazy things on the internet, but people say, oh, you wouldn't, you wouldn't die in three hours just from hanging on a cross. Well, they need to study, study a little more carefully. If you're already in hemorrhagic shock when you get up there and you go through some of the other uh, sufferings that we'll go through, it, it's very, very probable that an individual could die in less than three hours. Death was hastened by breaking the legs. We'll go through this a little bit later, but to inspire, to breathe in on the cross, you would have to push up on your feet and pull up with your hands, both of which would cause unbelievable pain. So your lungs are overinflated, hyperinflated. By breaking your legs, you lose that ability to get that little advantage in respiration and you would basically suffocate faster. Obviously, our Lord was the unblemished lamb, right? Like in the Passover, so he didn't have a broken bone when he died. So they didn't break his legs. And finally, death was assured by a spear wound to the right chest. The theory is that most people are right-handed. Roman soldiers were taught to preferentially strike the right chest because most people held, most people held their shield in their left hand. So if you gave a Roman soldier an order, go make sure that guy's dead, just by rote, by training, he'd stab the right chest. This is a Rubens painting, and the reason I show this, this is one of the theories why crucifixes are often depicted as uh, the, the, the Latin crucifix, as they call it, with you know, our small letter T, and that is that the nameplate or the titulum was put on the top, and that could give you that image. That's you know, where they wrote the, the uh, obviously for our Lord, it was Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, but it could be whatever the executioners wanted to put up there, whatever crime you committed or whatever. As far as how any victim, and in particular our Lord's hands and wrists were affixed to the cross, this is an unbelievably spirited debate. This makes sports debates and everything else, political debates, look like uh, small potatoes. These people are adamant about what they believe, uh, where the nails went, uh, and, and it's actually, this debate rages. Pierre Barbet wrote this book on the right called uh, A Doctor at Calvary. This is an unbelievable little book. This guy was a real Renaissance man. Fluent in Latin and Greek. He laments in the introduction. He didn't speak Aramaic. He read all these original sources going back into the 3rd and 4th century and did a tremendous amount of research. In the 50s, he took cadaver arms and basically pounded a nail through the palm and put strain gauges and weight and then saw how much weight the arm could bear. And eventually, a lot of these things tore through this uh, flexor retinaculum and he concluded that the palm probably was not strong enough to hold the weight, and he theorized that the spikes went through the wrist. And part of this was generated also by the image of the shroud, which I'll show you in a minute, that it does look like the blood on the shroud is more really at the wrist than in the palm. Another book, <coughs> excuse me, by this Dr. Zugabe, another excellent book. This guy was a medical examiner 
north of New York City. He spent a little bit of time in Pittsburgh in his training. Uh, it's called The Crucifixion of Jesus, A Forensic Inquiry. Another great book. And he is adamant that the spike did go through kind of the bottom, the palm, and come out the wrist. And you know, th this is a picture of an image from the shroud that looks like it's more in the wrist. I think the bottom line is, A, we don't know, and I don't think it's that critical of a, of a point. Either way, whether you put it right through the middle of the palm or down here in the wrist bones, you're either going to be right on the median or the ulnar nerve, which you'd be out of your mind in pain. If someone in your carpenter shop here had a 10-penny nail driven through their palm or their wrist, they'd probably be on the floor passed out with pain. And then to try to manipulate the weight of your body by pulling or pushing on that, we can't even imagine. This just shows the proximity of the owner and, and uh, radial nerve. And finally, the nails through the feet. The nails through the feet are probably a little less problematic because you're not distracting the weight from those spikes. You're actually pushing the weight onto the spike, so it would be less likely to tear through. Um, However, there was an excavation, I'm not going to try to pronounce this name, this little Israeli town north of Jerusalem in 1968. And they uncovered this ankle bone here with a spike going through it. And these artifacts are very rare, very hard to find. Number one, they were expensive. They, they reused these things over and over. They would take them out of one victim and use them in another. Um, but also, they were thought to have some kind of miraculous, potent power, and so people would kind of hoard them. So they were very hard to find. This one may have been left because it was bent and it wasn't useful anymore. But this actually shows that this spike went laterally through the heel, right through that big fat heel bone in the back there. And this is kind of a mock-up which would show you. This is actually where they found this little shard of olive wood. The olive wood was probably just used as a flange to distribute the weight. Most people don't think that crucifixes were made from olive wood. But so you can see that at least in this case, the spike was driven laterally through the heel. And this is what it might look like. And again, here you see that this victim was tied rather than nailed onto the crucifix. Um, this was done so frequently, there were probably many ways that it was done. I just want to kind of go quickly now through <clears throat> a couple more things and then talk about the method of death in crucifixion. When we consider the, th the thrust of the spear by the centurion, and then we know that blood and water flow from the side of Christ, where does that come from? Physiologically, anatomically. So I'll give you my best guesstimates. Um, there's the quote from John. Immediately, blood and water flowed out. So let's talk about what they call water first. In other words, non-bloody fluid or serum. There are only probably three places that this could come from. Number one, the, the chest cavity itself. It's called a pleural effusion. Or number two in the chest cavity, what's called a layered hemothorax. And I'll go through these briefly and show them to you. Or finally, fluid, clear fluid, non-bloody fluid, can build up around the heart itself. That's called a pericardial effusion. That's probably unlikely. So let's go through these quickly. Our lungs fill up the entire thoracic cavity. 
if you open the chest, you can put your hand in there and slide. It's very slippery, uh, soft, slippery tissue, and it's lubricated by maybe five cc's of fluid on each side, very minimal, just enough to keep them lubricated so your lung moves against your chest wall when you breathe. If in some pathologic state, that fluid is produced faster than it can, than it can be reabsorbed, fluid builds up in your lung and that's called a pleural effusion. This can happen from pneumonia, it can happen from congestive heart failure, it can happen for a lot of reasons. And very often, we put tubes in people and drain this fluid out. So, these aren't the greatest quality x-rays, but look at the one on the right first. I'm sorry, your left. Um, that patient's left side of the chest is normal, but you, you can see the diaphragm go all the way down but on that patient's right chest, which is on the, your left of the screen, you see that that's blunted. And there's, a doctor could look at that and say, oh, this patient has fluid around his lung. And then if you lay the patient on their, with their right side down, you get a meniscus of fluid there. That's what this other picture showing you. And this is what it looks like on a CT scan. That fluid would build up. That's that gray area, screen left. That shouldn't be there. The, the two sides ought to look the same. So that's called a pleural effusion. You could get that from scourging. You could get that from high output cardiac failure. Our Lord had probably several reasons why it's reasonable to think that he could have had, could have had fluid built up at least in his right chest, if not both. There, there's one theory that says, well, maybe this was a layered hemothorax. <clears throat> maybe he blood, bled into his chest. <clears throat> if you take a tube of blood and let it sit, it takes time, maybe hours. The cellular components in the blood will fall to the bottom and the liquid is left at the top. And it's kind of slow and you know, it, it never gets quite as clear as it looks here, but this can happen. The problem is you'd have to be immobilized probably for a long period of time for this to happen in the upright position. So this is probably less likely. And then the third thing, this is another one of these pictures that are kind of amusing. This Roman soldier has, he looks like he's going to do the pole vault in the Olympics. That spear is about 15 feet long. Their javelins weren't like that. A Roman pylum was about two meters in length. And the crucifix is 20 feet high. So they, this is probably not realistic. So fluid can also build up around the heart. It's called a pericardial effusion as opposed to a pleural effusion, which is in the chest. This can happen, for example, after some viral infections, a viral cardiomyopathy. Um, people expound this as one possibility where the fluid came from. The problem I have with this, and I've talked to cardiac surgeons and thoracic surgeons for years about this, this fluid has to build up very slowly or it kills you. If you build up that thick gray stripe at the top is fluid. And if you built that up within a couple of hours, it might kill you. If you built that up over two or three weeks, your body would accommodate to it and you could probably tolerate it. So I think a, a pericardial effusion is fairly unlikely. So the most probable source of this, quote, water or non-bloody fluid was fluid accumulation in the right chest from all the reasons that we talked about before. All right, where did the blood come from now? Well, it either came from the heart, or it came from the intercostal artery, which are under the ribs, or blood in the chest, which is called a hemothorax, and we'll go through these real quickly. 
if you look at uh, the top left, that's kind of the view of the heart that you would have straight on anteriorly. So if someone, for example, were stabbed in the chest, it's most likely to hit the right side of the heart, which is depicted in blue, and the left side of the heart is depicted in red. So if you get stabbed in the anterior chest, it's probably going to hit your right ventricle. Although these, these uh, stabbers are creative, and we've seen it hit many different things over the years, but usually it would be the right ventricle. That's probably the, the most likely thing. You can also get what's called a hemothorax, where instead of building fluid up around the lung, you build up blood, and that makes sense. It could be that, but if that's where the blood came from, then where did this water come from or the clear fluid? And finally, you can hit an intercostal artery anytime, even putting a chest tube in occasionally. Uh, an inexperienced physician putting a chest tube in can hit an intercostal artery and it can bleed profoundly. So this is kind of what a CT scan would look like if you took a section through the body where that plate indicates on the left side over there. <clears throat> it's very easy to imagine this Roman sword coming through, clipping a little bit of the right chest cavity and then hitting the right ventricle. So the fluid around the lung comes out and then the blood comes from the heart. Now the last thing I want to consider, and in the interest of time, I'm going to move through these quickly. If anybody has any particular interest in any of them, I'd be glad to discuss it after. But there are a lot of different theories about what actually causes death on a crucifix. Um, a pulmonary embolism is a blood clot to your lung. Uh, Pascal Dupuis, any hockey fans? Pascal Dupuis had his knee reconstructed. It's not uncommon after an orthopedic procedure to get a blood clot in the leg. He goes back and plays hockey, it dislodges, goes to his lung, he gets short of breath. That's a pulmonary embolism. A ruptured ventricle. Your ventricle can rupture, for example, after a bad heart attack, but it takes hours and hours for that muscle to decay. It doesn't happen right away, and it's immediately fatal. We're going to talk a little bit more in detail about suffocation and what's called suspension trauma. We already mentioned shock. Shock, I think, plays a role in this. I don't think there's any doubt in my mind. How big of a role or small, we don't know, but if you crucified two victims and one was scourged to the point where he lost a liter or a liter and a half of blood and the other victim wasn't scourged at all, that first patient, that first person's gonna die more quickly. Less blood, less oxygen carrying capacity already on the verge of shock. And then we'll go through a few of these other ones quickly. Pulmonary embolism, I don't believe. The broken heart, this, this is kind of a romantic thing. This Dr. Stroud postulated this in the 19th century. Pretty unlikely. Suffocation. We, we talked a little bit before about the fact that when you are on a crucifix, your arms are extended, your intercostal muscles are extended, your diaphragm is pulled down. All these things tend to hyperinflate your lungs. So it's kind of like you took a big breath, but you can't breathe out. You can't uh, exhale. So your lungs are chronically too full. 
after a while you stop exchanging gases. You can't liberate the carbon dioxide and absorb the oxygen anymore, and slowly you kind of suffocate. There were people who witnessed horrible things in the death camps in World War II. And one of these witnesses saw victims who were, again, probably debilitated, weakened, starved individuals who were hoisted up on a rope with their arms over their head. And that's all they did. They tied a rope around their hands, threw it over a beam, and hoisted them up in the air. And some of these individuals would die within 30 or 60 minutes, partially from this suffocation hypothesis that we see in crucifixion. We won't go through all the mechanics of it, but that's the bottom line. So, again, this, these pictures are depicting an overinflated chest. It's probably also why a crucifixion victim would not be very loquacious. It'd be very hard to speak because you can't exhale. You'd have to try to inhale to phonate, but you can't exhale. It'd be very hard to talk. Uh, Over-expanded lungs, gradual, slow form of suffocation. Suspension trauma is an interesting thing that's been recognized in the last 30 or 40 years. Mountain climbers, um, window washers who were, you know, the scaffold collapses and they get stuck and hang on the side of a building. If you hang and you're immobilized and your legs are dangling for a period of time, the blood can pool in your legs by gravity, kind of why pilots wear those uh, suits with fluid in them, right, to keep the blood up in their torso and their brain so they don't pass out. So suspension trauma is probably part of this also. Um, people speculate that it could have been the um, stab wound, but you know, most, most of these revolve around the fact that uh, blood came out of the heart. And they say, well, if you have blood in your heart that will still flow, you couldn't have been dead before. And that's clearly not true. Um, you see, a trauma victim comes in basically dead on arrival. You try to resuscitate him. He's been dead for half an hour. If you open the chest, there's liquid blood in the heart. So some of these hypotheses were from poorly understood pathophysiology and uh, that one doesn't really make a lot of sense. Trauma victims have abnormal clotting, whether it's from hyperthermia, hypothermia, uh, blood loss, what, all the different things that involve trauma. This was a recent Grand Rounds at Presby, this guy who's an expert in this uh, traumatic coagulopathy. So your blood doesn't clot normally. If you, again, you take two individuals, one who's had suffered all these things already, and then a normal person, you made an, a, a cut on their arm in either case. The person who'd already been through all this trauma would bleed much more readily and much more freely. Their platelets are diminished, the, all the coagulation factors in the blood are used up, so you get this what's called a coagulopathy. And then finally, just to wrap it up, this was actually published, this kind of surprised me, this is uh, the Journal of the Royal Society of Medicine in um, London published this not that many years ago. Um, 
um, it's a very, obviously a very secular journal. I was a little surprised they published this. So they go through these different theories, uh, cardiac rupture, heart failure, shock, syncope is basically passing out, acidosis, when you go through all these things, acid builds up in your blood. All these things are probably playing a role in this. Until you get to the very bottom, you have one who the theory is he actually didn't die. There's one in every crowd. <laughs> and then I put, this is my foray into graphic arts. The length of the arrow on the left kind of is the weight that I put behind this particular theory. And I do think it's multifactorial. So I think you have an individual who's already in hypovolemic shock. When you're in hypovolemic shock for a long period of time, your heart starts to fail. High cardiac output, heart failure. Clearly, an individual in this condition would have acid building up in the blood, poorly perfused kidneys, poorly perfused liver, lactic acidosis, probably the beginnings of kidney failure. And then we talk about asphyxia, right? The suffocation from being upright on the cross for the reasons that we talked about where your lungs can expand and contract, and all of those things <coughs> clearly can give you abnormal heart rhythms. So I don't think there's one quick, easy reason why our Lord died on the cross or why any crucifixion victim would die, but I think it's multifactorial. I do think sometimes as Christians, we like to see the nice clean crucifix with the, it's artistic and it looks beautiful. But this is really a horrible thing. And it's enigmatic, I think, of the love that our Lord had for us that He would humiliate Himself and then suffer through these um, indescribable physical sufferings. But I do think sometimes we want to sanitize this. And this is just a quote from Martin Hengel who wrote a good book on crucifixion. He's a famous, I don't know much about him, but a um, religious historian and I guess philosopher and whatever. And this is one of my favorite. This is another Caravaggio. That's the supper at Emmaus when, after the resurrection when they recognize our Lord and the breaking of the bread. And then finally, just a couple little things in terms of bibliography. The two books by Barbet and Zugabe on the top are excellent. And then the Journal of the American Medical Association, 1986, and the lead author is Edwards. Faith and Reason Podcasts. New media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.